Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Jim Christie. It's like the first day and I already have like my own little character, but you know, this is the character I've been trying to get away from my whole life. <laughs> that and more, but first, this is the weekend after our most recent Risk live show at Caveat in New York City, and it was another absolutely phenomenal show. First two shows we've done back live on stage, they've just knocked it out of the park. Every storyteller, just fantastic. All over the emotional spectrum, everyone in the room so thrilled to be there. And it was great fun to be interacting with people via the live stream. Folks, the next Risk Live show in New York City is on August 18th. The show will again be at Caveat on the Lower East Side in New York. It'll be at 7 p.m. Eastern. You must show proof of vaccination. And it will be simultaneously live streamed on YouTube. So be sure to get your tickets for either the in-person show or the live stream at risk-show.com slash tour. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Nicola Cruz behind me now. And we have a phenomenal episode for you once again today. If you're new to the podcast, maybe you heard Risk mentioned recently on The Moth or This American Life. Welcome. We love newcomers. The idea of Risk is that folks can share radically honest stories here. Funny, sad, strange, beautiful, scary, any sorts of profound life experiences, but shared in the candid way a person might share with a therapist or a close loved one, and stories told with compassion. We always think, might someone out there need to hear this story? This is the 556th episode of Risk. So newcomers, Risk fans would tell you, you've just discovered a treasure trove. We're going to rerun the episode called The Best of Risk number 13 this coming Thursday. That episode contains the story that Shamila shared a very different version of on This American Life last week. Both versions of Shamila's story are so powerful in their own distinct ways, so it's well worth checking out This American Life's version and the Risk version. Also, if you're new to Risk, Risk can be uncensored. You know, if you've ever heard the expression NSFW, not safe for work, that applies to some of the stories on Risk. We generally think of the podcast as being for adults. That said, we are soon to be debuting our new podcast, 
real. Real will be safe for work and safe to play with kids within earshot, so stay tuned. Real is coming soon. Now, the theme of today's episode is character, where stereotypes fall apart and actions speak louder than words. In a little bit, we're going to hear from one of our favorites, Ray Christian, who has his own spectacular podcast called What's Ray Saying? Don't miss that. But before Ray, we're going to hear from Jim Christie. Jim is finishing a feature film based on his family's experience raising a child with autism. You can learn more about that at loveandcommunication.com. And here's Jim Christie now at the recent live show we did in New York City with a story we call All That Spaz. Hi, everybody. So when I was a kid, I got picked on a lot. And when I was in seventh grade, there was this kid named Derek who was after me like every day. And it got so bad that one day I decided to bring a pocket knife with me to school. And uh, when Derek tried to jump me at the bus stop, I pulled this knife on him. I dropped it after like two seconds because I guess I didn't have like a post knife pulling plan, you know. But I think I did it because I just wanted to get some measure of respect from these kids, you know. Uh, that didn't happen. I got suspended and I got ridiculed for like trying to act like I was this tough guy when I clearly wasn't. Uh, my parents took me out of the school at the end of the year and put me in a Quaker school where bullies don't even bother to apply and things got better for me. But, you know, I was always on the low rung of the social ladder, you know, and the summer before senior year, I wanted to, to reinvent myself. And so I saved up. I got myself contact lenses. And this is a big thing for me. I'd had glasses my whole life. And I had this idea that, you know, coming back in the fall as a senior, you know, I'd have these contact lenses that people would start to see me differently. Didn't happen. You know, if anything, they seemed to think it was kind of pathetic that I had made this effort to change my face, you know. It was like when they looked at me, they still saw the glasses, even though they weren't there. But then I got this amazing opportunity to actually reinvent myself. I was in the school play, and the drama teacher told a bunch of us that there's going to be a movie shooting in the area, and she could get us an appointment for a casting call. So a bunch of us go down Friday afternoon, 4 o'clock, Center City, Philadelphia, this casting office, and it's a zoo. There's literally like hundreds of prep school-age boys, and a lot of them are these kind of like thick-neck lacrosse playing guys, you know, who look like they might already have a DUI. Um, and a bunch of, bunch of my friends left because it was such a madhouse, but me and my, my friend Jonas, we stuck it out, finally got seen at 8 o'clock in the evening. And when I get in there, the casting person says to me, sees my name, and she's like, oh, are you related to Jim Christie, the theater professor from Villanova University? And I said, that's my dad. And uh, it turned out she was a student of my father's and had actually been in a play he had directed that I had seen like a few years before. So we're chatting about that. I do my audition. She ends up giving me and Jonas a ride home at the end of the night. So I feel like, you know, this is a good start. Sure enough, Jonas and I both get a call back to come in and do a video audition that they're going to send to the director. And we learn more about the project. It's called Dead Poet Society. Robin Williams is in it. So, you know, yeah, it's this real thing. So about a week and a half later, Jonas gets another callback that the director wants to meet him in New York City, along with the other like finalist actors, and I get nothing. And I hate on Jonas and his kind of handsome, non-awkward face for the next three weeks. 
until we both get another call and say neither one of us got a real part, but they want us both to be extras in the classroom, just like one of the other kids. I'm like, great. I just want to be like a part of this thing, right? So it's mid-October, the night before the first day of shooting, and I can't sleep. I've got a cold, so I'm kind of sniffling, but I'm just full of adrenaline, you know. Four o'clock in the morning, my mom drives me down to this prep school outside of Wilmington, Delaware called St. Andrews. We get there, there's all these trucks lined up, there's all this equipment, we're walking through the campus, it's gorgeous, and all these people around, we see Robin Williams. Dawn is breaking, I'm wearing my contact lenses, you know, it's just impossibly exciting, you know. So they gather all the kids together to meet the director. This really mild-mannered Australian guy named Peter Weir. And he talks us through the day. We're going to shoot this soccer practice, you know. And when he's done, I'm standing towards the front. He stops, like, right in front of me and kind of gets in my face. And he's like, yeah, um, you're sniffling. And I'm like, holy shit, he's going to fire me, right? Because he doesn't want me to get, like, the rest of his cast sick and fuck up his movie. And he goes, it's good. Um, props, he needs, he needs a handkerchief. So uh, when the camera's near you, um, just uh, use your handkerchief, right? And props, um, he needs glasses. (laughs) So the props guy comes over with these like librarian looking wireframe glasses for me to put over my brand new contact lenses, you know? And it's like crushing, you know? I mean, it's cool, the attention, you know? Uh, It's like the first day and I already have like my own little character, but you know, this is the character I've been trying to get away from my whole life. So um, the next week, we're shooting the inside scenes and, you know, anonymous looking building on the outside and on the inside, it's like full on movie magic. You know, they've got the, the cave where they're going to shoot the actual Dead Poet Society meetings. You know, I haven't been inside, but from the outside, you can tell it's got like real looking cave slime, you know, and the details in the classroom, you know, like my desk has real initials carved in the wood. The walls have the kind of faded cream paint, but at any time they can just push the walls away and move the cameras and the dollies and lights wherever they want. It does this really weird thing to your brain, you know, where on one side you know that you're in this soundstage in Wilmington, Delaware, and there's like a Taco Bell three doors down, but, and then I started your brain, it's like, no, it's the 50s, and it's it's English class. I got this textbook, and I'm wearing this uniform like the other kids, you know, and I have real social anxiety here like I do in real life. They put me in the front row right next to Ethan Hawke on my left, and Robin Williams doing his thing front and center, and I have a character name now, and that name is Spaz. Now, here's the thing. If I had tried out for a part in this movie and there was, you know, a character named Spaz in the script and I got that part, you know, that would be one thing. But I just came here as myself. Uh, And the other kids, you know, who are actors, but they're also just kids, started calling me Spaz in real life. And it just stuck. And I want to, like, scream out, you know, Spaz in a movie has been done, all right? It was done in Meatballs. It was a pretty lowbrow bit. We're doing Dead Poet Society here. We should be a little bigger than that, you know? Uh, But I don't. I don't say that to anyone. So one day, we're waiting for the next take, and uh, this kid, Kurt, who sits like three rows behind me, nice kid, decides to ball up a piece of paper and throw it at me, and it hits me on the back of the head, falls down, and everybody laughs. No big thing, right? So the director sees this, and he comes over, and he says, "Uh, yeah, that was good. Uh, We'll we'll, we'll shoot that. Spaz, when it hits you, um, give us a sniffle and uh, say something like, "Uh, cut that out, cut that out, something like that. Uh, so this is happening, right? You know. Being harassed in a school setting for the amusement of others has been a part of my life for as long as I can remember. Well, now it's going to be a part of this movie, you know, like it or not. 
But there's a payoff because when you're an extra in a movie and the director tells you to talk on camera, you get like promoted. You get a lot more money. They pay what's called union scale. Uh, now when they want me on back-to-back days, they put me in a hotel. And when we shoot on set back at the school, I get my own trailer. It's a third of a trailer, but you know, it's mine. It's got my name on it, masking tape and a Sharpie, S-P-A-Z. You can imagine how proud my parents are when they come to the set and see that. So it's the last day of shooting, and we're shooting the last sequence, the big moment where Robin Williams comes back to the classroom, and all the extras, like, we're all buzzing about, like, whether or not we're going to get to stand up on our desk, you know? And I find I really care, you know? Like, I want Spaz to be on the right side of history. Um, And when they're starting to set up the wide shots, they tell me, yeah, you're going to stand up on your desk. I'm all psyched. And um, they start to shoot it, and I get this real rush from it, you know? There's this thing where I'm standing towards the front, and I'm looking towards the back, so I can see all the other kids as they stand, and, you know, there's this kind of, like, rush of feeling of camaraderie, right? Where, like, in this big, important moment, you know, we're taking this stand, you know? So they finish the uh, wide shots. They do the close-ups of Robin Williams and his entrance and the evil headmaster guy and Ethan Hawke, the whole oh, captain, my captain, and all the Dead Poet Society and their reaction, and everybody's crying. And that starts to be kind of a problem because they can't restart the takes with their eyes all red and watery and stuff. So it all takes a while. And I'm surprised when the director comes over to me and says he wants to get a shot of Spaz deciding to get up on his desk. And it's terrifying for a couple reasons. First, you know, I've seen a lot of close-ups. You know, I see how it works and everything. But until I have my own, I had no idea how freaking in your grill the camera is in a close-up. You know, the idea with film acting is you're supposed to, like, ignore the camera. That's a joke. This thing's obscuring, like, half my field of vision, you know? But the other thing is they set it up. I realized the other actors, Robin freaking Williams, the headmaster guy who I've watched on scene elsewhere since I was like 10 years old, Ethan Hawke, they're all about to do this scene, go through all the acting just for my benefit. So like I'm in the moment in my close-up. And I'm too in the moment because my heart is beating so hard and so loud. I'm sure the sound guy is going to be like, what the fuck is that noise? Um, But he does and he just says speed. Uh, Director says action. And uh, I do my little sniffle moment of decision. I stand up on my desk. Director says cut. And that's it. They don't have me do it again because I guess I was perfect. um, Or else maybe it wasn't the most important shot of the day. But not long after they they were done and we were all hugging and crying. Because you have to understand, like, we're teenage boys. You know, we're like fully bought into the the magic of Dead Poet Society, you know. And plus, most of us know we're never going to have another experience like this for the rest of our lives, you know. I watched the movie not long ago with my own family, and uh, it holds up well. My own adolescent kids seemed to like it. They particularly liked laughing in my face when I would come up on the screen. But it was nice seeing it with them. But it, it would still come back to me, you know, when I would see myself, you know, that, that when it started, I just wanted so badly to be one of the guys. And this is how it turned out, the sniffling kid with the, the glasses and the embarrassing name. 30 years later, you know, happy family, beautiful wife, it's still so easy for me to access that feeling of adolescent self-shame. Whatever I do the rest of my life, I've been immortalized in this now classic movie. It'll be in my obituary someday. This was Spaz. (laughs) Like it or not, that's who I am. Thanks a lot. We all have a great need for acceptance. You must trust that your beliefs are unique, your own, even though others may think them odd or unpopular, even though the herd may go, that's bad. (laughs) Robert Frost said, two roads diverged in the wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by. 
and that has made all the difference. And I want you to find your own walk right now, your own way of striding, pacing, any direction, anything you want, whether it's proud, whether it's silly, anything. Gentlemen, the courtyard is yours. You don't have to perform, just make it for yourself. Mr. Dalton, you'll be joining us. Exercising the right not to walk. Thank you, Mr. Dalton. Just illustrate the point. Swim against the stream. Growing up as a kid in a poor, dilapidated part of town in Richmond, Virginia called Church Hill, despite the fact that we were very poor, we were more fortunate than some of the other families because in our house, food was love. In the way my mama expressed it was special soup when you were sick, meals together on Sunday so we could be together, piece of cake, fruit, maybe your favorite meal when you felt bad. And even though it wasn't always the kind of food that we wanted to eat, my mama always made sure that our belly stayed full. Unlike the family that lived next door, the Davis family. Now in my house, it was just me, my mama, and my stepdaddy. Both of them were illiterate. My stepdaddy did labor, pick up jobs wherever he could find them. My mama cleaned white people's houses for a living, and ironically, she babysit their kids during the day. Now the Davis family was a family of four kids, a mama and a daddy. The daddy who did labor, pick up work, just like my stepdaddy all day long. But their mama who stayed home, and whenever she didn't have any food for the kids to eat, or whenever she just didn't feel like feeding the kids, which was almost all the time, she would just let the kids loose to roam the streets, to maybe go to somebody's house, eat off of them, find something to eat, just find a way to pick up a meal any way that they could. Now, one of the kids in the family, we became pretty close. Well, we were about the same age. We had the same kind of weird kind of dreams. We had the same problems and issues in our crime-ridden neighborhood. But you know, children don't always need a reason to be friends. Just being around and having somebody your age to play with can be good enough. Now, I remember one day when Moses, the boy in the family who I became close to, he waited me out when my mama was cooking. We had just came back from school and my mama yelled out, it's time to eat. And as soon as my mama opened that door, Moses ran right by me, ran right to the kitchen, grabbed a fistful of mashed potatoes, grabbed a piece of chicken. He started to eating. He looked like a chipmunk, his jaws were so full. And my mama looked at him and looked at me and she yelled out, boy, and Moses just stared at her, and I stared at Moses, and then I looked at my mama, and she took a deep breath. <sighs> she said, wash your hands first. Well, my mama had always told me never to eat at the Davis's house. Well, she didn't really have to worry about that because I never really saw any food in their house anyway. The only thing that I remember them ever really eating was two things. You see... Back in those days, you could have human food and pet food in the same place. 
in a grocery store, especially in the black community. And I can remember there was something like uh, Star Kiss Tuna. It could be 50 cent a can right beside Cat Tuna, which might sell for 20 cans for a dollar. And we know that the Davis had hundreds and hundreds of cat food cans behind their house, but they didn't own any cats. The only other thing I saw them cook, something we used to call tangy meat. Tangy meat may have been like a depression era food. See, because back then also, when food would spoil or it'd be rotten, the grocery stores would just take this food and they would just throw it out in the big dumpster. They wouldn't put any poisons or anything like that. And people could have easy access to it. And the Davises would take food like that, rotten, spoil. It could have maggots on it. Flies may have touched it. It could be decomposed in all kinds of ways. They would take this old meat and they would boil it. That was supposed to sanitize it or make it sterile in some way. So what they would do is they would boil that, put more meat in it, and boil it, eat it, boil it, eat it until that was gone. And I can remember in the summertime being over there at the house and a pot of tangy meat was on the stove and that thing was bubbling and gurgling and giving off an awful gas and it didn't even have any heat on it at all. Well, one of the things that changed stuff for a lot of the kids and the family in our community was when the government started issuing cheese. These blocks of cheese for a lot of kids and for a lot of families was probably more nutrition than they ever was going to get during the day. Cause I can remember my friend Moses, he loved, loved, loved his cheese. In fact, he told me once, I like my cheese sandwich with no bread. I thought, no bread? Man, that's just cheese. Well, the next biggest thing that happened in the community and probably had the biggest impact on my family and a lot of the other families in the community, and that was free lunch. That free lunch program. For a lot of us kids, that's probably more balanced nutrition than we would ever get. Most of us never even drank sweet milk or a regular milk, fresh milk at home until we got to school. And uh, the government went from giving us or requiring us to have one pint of milk to having two pints of milk. So that was something amazing. They made it really simple because it was just a one page form, a piece of paper um, that you had to fill out. And all it was necessary was your family to have the wherewithal to get it done. In fact, uh, for some kids, the teachers were doing it for them. But for some reason, the Davis family, they didn't get it done. So my friend Moses... He became involved in a different sort of crime. Um, it's something we call snatching bags or just snatching. And that's when a bigger kid, stronger kids or faster kids will run up behind little kids going to school in the morning. And there was just a large number of us walking with our little lunch bags and lunch boxes in our hand. And a kid would just run up behind them, push the kid down and grab their bag and run off. Sometimes they would grab more than one. Occasionally, it would be a small pack of boys, maybe two or three, but not very often. Now, for my sake, my mama also prepared me a lunch bag, and so I never had to worry about getting mine snatched. But I can hardly remember a single day when I was in elementary school that some kid didn't get their bags snatched. In my view, this was an awful thing. And I always thought to myself, Maybe he didn't need to do this. And I had said to Moses on more than one occasion, why are you doing that? 
You know, maybe my mama would make you some lunch. But he never really took me up on that one. I guess even then when we were little, Moses had some kind of pride. But a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? Who would really care that much? After Moses spent time snatching bags, he kind of leveled up. And then he started beating kids up for their lunch tickets. But by the time we got to high school, middle school, a little bit older, just snatching kids' bags became sort of passe. It wasn't enough for him to simply take their lunch tickets. He would also use that as an opportunity to take whatever little money they may have had. Maybe a nickel or a dime for milk or some other lunch they might have had. Whatever they had money for, he was taking that too and starting to hit kids and push them around. I can remember one time when uh, Moses kind of talked me into it, but well, I was part of it. I wasn't free of guilt. But one time I let him talk me into stealing peach from the stores. And so we both had this peach. We both had taken it from the store. And when we ran outside the store, my man Moses immediately started eating his peach. We took about five steps and he stopped dead in his tracks. His eyes got real big. He started waving his arms all around and then he fell on the ground. And as soon as his chest hit the concrete, a big old chunk of peach flew out of his mouth. And he started breathing hard and heaving up and down. And that chunk of peach laid down on the ground, just dripping with fluids and phlegm. And he looked at that chunk of peach, picked it up and threw it back in his mouth. And we kept on running. There was this time that uh, we were walking by this window and it had some broken glass. And inside that window was a bunch of tomatoes that somebody had left out there in the sun to ripen. And that was pretty common back then. My man Moses reached inside that window and snatched one of those tomatoes out. And at the same time he did this, and it's like in brain time, things slow down. As soon as he snatched that tomato out, that glass cleaved the skin off his arm all the way down to the white meat from the inside of his wrist all the way down to his elbow. And I just looked at it and it started with a bunch of tiny little red spots and then it filled up to one big spot and then it started to drip like sweat. And I instantly reached out to grab his arm to tell him, man, look, what happened to your arm? And he snatched his arm back and he said, uh-uh, no, man, I'm not gonna give you none of my tomato. But as bad as his arm looked, it required no more than just wrapping it up with a rag. Scratches and scrapes that we endured where I grew up were everyday thing. Not the thing that any kid I grew up around would have went to the hospital for. Or even worried your parents about. By the time we had gotten a little bit older, a little bit bigger, and we are in um, high school. I can remember this incident in the cafeteria where now Moses is... Uh, really being tough with kids and he was just pushing this guy around and shoving him around and just it was what he did all the time acting like he was just having fun with these kids as an excuse to take their food away from him and one time i saw him in the cafeteria doing this and me and him we caught each other's eyes and i looked at him and he looked at me and he knew that i knew exactly why he was really doing this 
It was this incident once where we were standing outside at the bus stop and this kid was out there eating a sandwich. And Moses ran up to that kid and he said, hey, give me that sandwich. And the kid looked at Moses and he said, hey, hey, okay, if you want the sandwich, if you need the sandwich, if you're that desperate, if you're that hungry, here, take it, take the sandwich. And Moses stared at the kid and he looked at me and I could sense his embarrassment. I knew he was ashamed and he punched the kid in his face and he ran off. I had known Moses most of my life. His drives were my drives. I knew what it was like to be hungry all day, but I also knew the pleasure of knowing my mama was going to be home eventually and she would cook for me. I knew what it was like to want and be desperate, just like Moses. But I also knew that my mama would take care of my very basic needs. I had the same desire for fun and enjoy myself and to be a kid just like Moses. But he spent more time on basic things like food to eat. I had the same desires and drive to want to love and be loved just like Moses. Except that my mama hugged me and she fed me. And his mama and daddy did not. could not have known that the relationship between me and Moses, a guy that I had known most of my life, would soon be coming to an end. When one day Moses was late coming to school, too late to get his usual breakfast, and about the same time a young white teacher was also heading toward the school. The school system had just started the integration. There was a lot of white flight from the public schools, a lot of fears in the community about what would happen when schools were integrated and a lot of fear and a lot of apprehension around this whole issue. So on this fateful day when uh, Moses was late getting to school, this young white teacher was also late and she was scurrying to the building, books, lunch in hand, papers, and she ran into Moses. And Moses pushed her down grabbed her lunch and he ran off and it didn't take long for the whole community to be outraged that this poor white woman was attacked in broad daylight by this black monster well it didn't take long for Moses to be caught charged with robbery assault attempted rape which was a default crime back then for anything that happened between a white woman and a black man. Hearing about what Moses did and hearing all over the community people saying, what kind of animal could do such a thing? I knew what type, a hungry one. Food is love, but hunger will turn you into an animal.
This is Risk. This is Lucky Peterson behind me now, and we just heard from Ray Christian. And as you know, he has a fabulous podcast of his own called What's Ray Saying? You can find him on Twitter and on Facebook at What's Ray Saying. The editing on that story was done by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. And the editing of Jim Christie's story at the top of the show was by our editor, Chris Gersbeck. Hey, if you are a Risk listener living in the city of Toronto, Canada, or Amsterdam in the Netherlands, reach out to me at kevin at risk-show.com. There's a particular project I'm thinking of working on that might involve the city of Toronto or the city of Amsterdam. And I want to chat with folks in those towns. I'm at kevin at risk-show.com. Folks, the storystudio.org is where you'll find so many storytelling training opportunities, like our two-day level one online group storytelling workshop on July 27th and 29th at 7 p.m. Eastern. And the Story Studio teaches customized corporate workshops, too. Businesses love our workshops, and all of that is at thestorystudio.org. Also, if you love what we do here on Risk and over at the Story Studio, too, the support of our fans could not be more crucial to us and more appreciated. By becoming a member over at patreon.com slash risk, you'll have access to over 140 bonus stories, our many anecdote compilations, over 50 check-ins, including interviews with staff and storytellers, a couple of free Story Studio classes in video form, and links to videos of our past live streams, and more. So check out all of that at patreon.com slash risk. And if you'd like to make a one-time donation, that's at paypal.me slash risk show. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries... If you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance. There's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Our final story on today's episode comes to us from one of those live streams that we were doing before we were back up on stage. Tiana Kerg 
shared this story. She reached out to us. She was a listener and had never told a story like this. But we have coaches, the same people who teach at thestorystudio.org are the people who coach folks on preparing their stories for the podcast. So Tiana's a perfect example of someone who took a risk and did a beautiful job. And I should warn you, there is violence in this story. But look for Tiana on Instagram at TKCubicurg, and here she is now, Tiana Kurg, with a story we call help I want to know I want to know I want to know I don't know no 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 I feel to be to be All right, so me, my parents, and my older sister had traveled from Rochester, New York to Baltimore to attend a family funeral. At the end of the night, my dad and my sister and a handful of other family members decided that we wanted to go out bar hopping. I think just to end the night on a good note to hang out with family while we were all still around, just have a good time. So it was getting kind of late. We had a good time. It was about 1.30. My dad is the kind of person that can just kind of mesh well into any group, any size, whether he knows him or not. But at the end of the night, I was ready to go home and decompress in a dark hotel room. We were standing outside of the bar. It was one of the only establishments that was still open on the block, and the rest of the street was dark. And I was aware that there was a group down the street that was having an argument, but I wasn't really paying attention to them until they got up and ran across the street. And they had run into a parking lot And you could only see the entrance to the parking lot. You couldn't see into the parking lot at all. And I was listening to their conversation get louder and more aggressive. And I was staring at that entrance when this guy just flew out of it. He was completely parallel to the ground, just this unnatural angle. And he must have been unconscious before he hit the ground because he didn't do anything to protect his head. And I watched his head bounce off the pavement. And he was just laying there for a minute. And then another guy came out from that same parking lot. He wasn't wearing a shirt, strutting around. He had his arms flexed down by his side. He was making these whooping noises. And he stood next to the unconscious man. And he brought his foot really high up into the air. And then he brought his heel down onto the man's ribcage. Behind us, someone in our group said, we really need to go. And I remember thinking, that sounds like a really good idea. I would love to do that. I just wanted to bail on that situation. I wanted to get out of there. But my dad was in front of me and he apologized and he said he couldn't leave until he knew that that man was okay. And he started walking across the street and like he had me attached to a rope behind him. I went with him and then I was just standing over this unconscious man on the ground and I was staring down at his face. There was a woman by his head And she was trying to figure out what intersection we were at, but she couldn't see the road sign. So she said, somebody needs to take his head. And I was standing right there. So I knelt down and I remember I braced myself because I thought that his hair would be dirty and slimy or tangled or something like that. It would just be gross. But I remember when I put my hand into his blonde curly hair, it was just really soft, really clean. 
And I was sitting there and I was looking down at his face. He had blood all over his face. His nose was broken. His teeth were shattered. There was this line of blood that was coming up into his eye cavity and going across his forehead. And it was headed towards where my hand was. And I remember thinking that I was really grossed out. I did not want that to touch me at all. But the woman across from me, she was clasping one of his hands in both of her hands. And she was just saying like the kind of stuff that you would want to hear if you were in that situation, just reassuring him that there were people there to help him, that we weren't going anywhere. And his hand and hers was absolutely covered in blood. Not obviously, it was like a fine mist, but it was there. And we stayed with him until he started to regain consciousness. I don't remember what anyone in my group was doing. In those kind of situations, you just lose all peripheral awareness. I was only aware of what was happening directly in front of me. But I do remember at one point after the man was sitting up, my dad was across from me and he had a washcloth that he'd gotten from somewhere and he was rubbing it really hard into the man's cheek, trying to get the blood off. I don't think he knew that the man's nose was broken and then he was just gone again. The cop showed up and someone behind us said, all right, now we really have to go. And I think the group had a consensus and we all stood up and we started walking away. I remember I was really aware of my dad. I was really preoccupied by him because he's not the kind of person who enjoys violence at all, not entertainment. He doesn't like cop shows. He doesn't like action shows, nothing. He avoids it. And I could tell he was having a really hard time processing this. His eyes were glassy. They weren't focused. He wasn't really looking at anything. And we got to the car and we started driving back to the hotel and I could see he was having an even harder time with it. He was taking his glasses off. He was rubbing at his eyes, just fidgeting a lot. And when we got to the elevator at the hotel, we went up to the room where my mom was sleeping. He just walked silently over to her. He wrapped his arms around her and then he just started crying. And I remember thinking at the time that I didn't, I didn't have any reaction to that at all. It was like that whole incident had washed over me and left nothing behind. And I went to sleep just fine that night, no dreams. I woke up the next morning, I felt fine. And it wasn't until about halfway into this seven hour car ride back home, all of these images and these sounds started flooding back into my head. The blood had formed these like cat whisker streaks on his cheeks, his teeth all twisted. The sound that his body made when it hit the ground, it was like a what slapping noise? It wasn't solid sounding at all. And I thought if I just pulled over for a second, then I could get my head on straight and all of this would be over with. But I also just wanted to get home. So I drove through it. I got home. I told my partner about what happened. I thought if I went to sleep, my brain would reset. I would be fine the next day. But I woke up and it was worse. Throughout the whole day, I just kept thinking about him. And I did the same thing. I thought... Just go to sleep. You'll wake up the next day. It'll be better the next day. And I did that for six days. And every day just got worse and worse. It felt like this whole incident was just compressing down on top of me. And I knew that I had to talk to my dad about it, which was a weird impulse to have. You know, my dad is like any other human being and he has feelings, but he doesn't talk to us about it. I don't talk to him about it. Usually that's something that I would go to my mom for, but I knew it had to be him. So they lived close by. I drove over. And the moment I saw my dad, I just burst into tears. He asked me what was wrong. And I said that I was having a really 
hard time processing what happened in Baltimore. He didn't even know what I was talking about. I had to remind him that, you know, we saw that guy, that fight. He kept asking me a weird question. He said, why are you having such a hard time with this? And I thought it was obvious because I'd seen something violent. I'd seen a lot of blood. I'd seen injuries. But the more that I thought about it, the more those reasons just didn't seem like the right reasons. They didn't feel genuine. And I realized it's because I felt really guilty. I'd had a lot of opportunities in my life to help somebody out. Like when we did Saturday morning bowling league when I was growing up and there was this kid who was just getting relentlessly bullied. And when it all came to a head and the people asked me what happened, I said, I don't know. I didn't defend him. And then in California, there was a woman, she was running away from a man and he caught up to her and he put her in this headlock and she made eye contact with me. And I could tell by the look in her eyes that she wanted help. And the man, he made eye contact with me at the same time. And it was like he was daring me to do something. And what I did was I stepped out of the way and I let them go through. Or even in high school, when I was the person someone should have done something about, stopped me from doing what I was doing, and nobody did. And I kept thinking that the next opportunity that I had, I was going to be a better person. I was going to help him. And I told my dad about that. And he told me that it was different this time. Might not have been my first instinct to go over. Might not even have been my second. But in the end, I did go over and I did do something. So at the very least, I could forgive myself for that. And it just kind of put this in a completely different perspective for me. This whole incident actually kind of helped me and my dad's bond grow stronger. I talked to him more about my feelings. And he talks to me a little bit more about his. And I'd like to say that this has caused some drastic changes in how I live day to day or that I've even had an opportunity to prove myself better that I could do this next time, but it just hasn't come up. But I do think that given the next opportunity, if I'm there and I see someone that needs help, I do feel like I've gained some kind of emotional bravery that the next time I see someone who needs help, that I would be capable of crossing the street first. Thank you. Wow. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is 10,000 Maniacs behind me now, and we just heard from Tiana Kerg, who you can find on Instagram at TKCubicurg. Don't forget, August 18th is the next Risk Live show at Caveat on the Lower East Side, 7 p.m. Eastern. You get your tickets for the live show or the live stream of it on YouTube at risk-show.com slash 
tour. Folks, I cannot tell you how rewarding, how meaningful it has been to me to do so much storytelling sort of coaching with you all, risk fans of all walks of life, doctors, lawyers, teachers, preachers, social workers, online influencers, people who have to do business presentations or people who have to do a wedding toast or a eulogy. I've directed solo shows even and coached people on their memoirs or their YouTube content. And I'll tell you, I've also had a lot of sessions with Risk fans who just wanted to kind of chat. You know, sometimes a person might be at a turning point in their life and they're a big fan of the show and they feel like, oh, well, my, my sex life is headed in this direction or I'm still trying to get over this thing that happened to me. And I know you've worked with a lot of people on stories about this kind of thing. It's been a real honor for me to have some of that real personal time with fans who just want to talk through something. So all of that, my coaching, can be found at kevinallison.com. I also do short, fun video messages or video chatting through cameo.com slash thekevinallison. And I take very special customizable requests if people just write me at kevin at risk-show.com. And folks, there's so much wonderful merchandise to find at the Risk Shop at risk-show.com slash shop with free standard shipping on everything there from July 26th to the 29th. And have you ever wanted to share an anecdote on the podcast, one of those super short stories that focus mostly on just one incident. Well, now everything you need to know about pitching us your anecdotes is at risk-show.com slash anecdotes. And if you'd like to pitch a longer story like any of the ones you heard on today's episode, that's all at risk-show.com slash submissions. Don't forget to follow us on our socials. We're at Risk Show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at the Kevin Allison. The Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group on Facebook is a great place to talk about the podcast with fellow fans, as is our subreddit, Risk Podcast. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. There's more. Oh, what a bunch of characters I'm mixed up with. <laughs>